Great God, our Father, Savior, Holy Spirit, our hearts were filled with gratitude for your grace and your faithfulness. Thank you for caring about those who we care about, for those who are sick or injured, recovering from surgery or anticipating surgery. Heal them, Father. Lord, to their joy and to your glory. For those who grieve, comfort them with your presence and the hope of eternal life in Christ. Thank you for caring about this world, a world bent on rejecting you, a world that instead turns to violence, power, wealth, pleasure, and self-interest to try to find meaning, to try to find hope and to try to find peace. 
May we, your people, truly be salt which flavors and preserves a tasteless and dying world with the truth of the gospel lived and proclaimed. Thank you for your church. We are not perfect, but we are yours nonetheless. Help us to see what you see in our families, what you see in our communities, our region, our nation, and the world. May our hearts break over what breaks your heart. May we laugh when you laugh and weep when you weep. Give us vision, Father, and with it the wisdom to understand your mission and the energy to faithfully carry it out. Thank you for your word of life, which we long for, and for your table, which spiritually sustains and encourages us as your family, a family called by your name, Christians. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Um, we will be in Exodus today. Surprise. Exodus chapter 7. But I will begin reading in uh, chapter 6. Now, when we last saw uh, Moses here in Exodus, um, his actions before Pharaoh increased the workload of the people, didn't it? So, so the people were not happy with Moses, his own people. And now God has tasked him with even greater things. Uh, and this time it's not going to be his people, it's going to be Pharaoh who is not going to be happy with Moses. So I will begin reading in chapter 6, verse 28. And you will notice, if you're looking at chapter 6, we left off early in chapter 6, and then there's this long genealogy. Uh, and you know I'm not scared to preach through genealogies. I've done it, but we're not going to do that today. So we're going to pick up in 628. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they the magicians of Egypt also did the same thing by their secrets. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, and still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Father, we pray now for the illumination of your spirit, that your word may go forth uh, as you intend. Uh, may our hearts and ears be open and eager to hear and learn. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen. So, we are going to look at several of the plagues today. We will not look at all of them. 
so we're going to cover a lot of ground today in Exodus. The current plan is Pastor Keith will be at the General Assembly representing us uh, June 11th. Uh, I will preach then, and we will look at the plagues, and then uh, again at the end of the month at my regular scheduled time, I hope to finish the plagues. So that is the plan, and we call them plagues. The Bible doesn't necessarily call them plagues. They're signs and wonders. They are works of God, but we simply refer to them as the plagues. So who is your God? Who is your God? That is probably the most important question you'll ever answer in your life. And you'll probably have to answer it over and over and over. The book of Exodus is the story that shows us exactly who God is. In this section, looking at the plagues, I suppose modern people with no um, knowledge of what the Bible might have to say might look at this and say, are you kidding me? This is nuts. What is this stuff? How cruel is this God? They might say that. It is, they are strange. And it's quite severe. It's quite shocking, in fact. But we have to understand, there's something bigger going on here than these plagues than what we see at first glance. God was judging the Egyptians indeed. But he's doing through so through the gods that they worship. In Exodus 12, God said that he was going to perform the last sign, the death of the firstborn, and in doing so, he was executing judgment against all the gods of Egypt. And this is also repeated in the book of Numbers. The Lord had executed judgment against their gods. The plagues fell on all the areas of life that were supposed to be protected by Egypt's gods. Dr. James Boyce, in a writing, said there were about 80 major deities or gods in Egypt. And they're all clustered around the three great natural forces of Egyptian life. The Nile River the land, and the sky. And the first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile, and the next four plagues are against the land gods, and the final four plagues are against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. You remember that when we get to the final plague, the gods of the sky. See, God put his glory on display in judging these false gods. God wants everyone to know he's God. There is no other. This theme echoes through the Bible. Later in Exodus, what, are we, what is the first commandment? Do not have other gods besides me. Martin Luther said there's really only one commandment. The first. Because if you keep that, you will easily keep the others. Disappointing us again to the question. This morning, who is your God? Oh, we all know the right answer. If any one of us got in a conversation and asked each other the question, we know the right answer, don't we? Of course we do. But do we know? You know, the Bible describes the God of Moses in so many different ways. In Deuteronomy 4, Scripture says, or has a God attempted to go and take a nation as his own out of another nation by trials, signs, wonders, and war, by a strong hand and an outstretched arm, by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you before your eyes. You were shown these things so that you would know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. This, this statement by a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That too is a direct affront to the Egyptian gods. And you might be saying, well, how is that, Mike? One of the Egyptian gods, of course, is Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh is seen as a god. Every Pharaoh for 3,000 years had his likeness recreated. It's like presidents and governors, politicians. Had his portrait done, essentially. Every Pharaoh for 3,000 years is pictured in the same pose with a whip held up in his right hand and in his left outstretched hand the hair in his hand of one of his servants. Now what does that tell you? Not a very nice picture with an outstretched hand, an outstretched arm. That is God's answer to Pharaoh. I'll do you one better with an outstretched arm and a hand. Later in Joshua, we see that the people of Israel would ultimately worship the gods of Egypt. Even as their leaders tell them, you must worship the true God. Therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your fathers worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship Yahweh. Isaiah says, God says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. In the New Testament, similar language. Jesus refers to himself as I am. The second person of the triune God tells us, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent. There is indeed only one God. We know this. We need to embrace him through Christ. Very God of very God. Paul says that turning, that conversion is a matter of turning from idols to the living God. So I'll ask you again, who is God? Who is your God? In all of these plagues, Five chapters, the overarching theme, the overarching message, and I told you this before, way back in Exodus, that they may know that I am Yahweh. That is repeated over and over in the book of Exodus. Over and over. Now, our opening scene, Aaron throws down the staff. And it turns into a serpent. Well, we've heard about a staff before, haven't we? Remember back in Exodus 3 when Moses is at the burning bush? And he's with the, he has his staff. And, and we find out the staff will come to represent God's presence with Moses. I will be with you. So he throws his staff down and it turns into a serpent. And Pharaoh's magicians... They're able to replicate that. How? We, we don't know. Dark arts, magic. What happens to their serpents? Aaron's serpent swallows them up. This is a bookend. Oh, here goes Mike and these bookends again. He's always talking about bookends. This is the beginning of a, of a section of deliverance. Swallowed them up. What's going to happen to Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea? So this little event, this, this serpent swallowing these other serpents is a microcosm of the plagues, of everything that's to come. And we know for the Egyptians, the serpents represented royalty. Remember I told you that Pharaoh wears a, a cobra, a serpent, on his crown, right? They worship snakes. In, in doing some reading, I saw a prayer that Pharaohs would pray. I didn't include it in here, but something along the lines to make me a terror as the snakes are to people. That would be a new Pharaoh's prayer. So it's very interesting that that is the first thing that happens here. 
You might also remember a question Pharaoh asked Moses when we last looked at this. Who is this Yahweh? I've never heard of him. Who is he that I should listen to his voice? Do you remember that? He's going to find out. <laughs> other than through general revelation and through other Christians we encounter, there are basically two ways to come to know God. Through his grace and mercy in Christ Jesus or through his dreadful judgment. Pharaoh's questions about God are about to be answered. In the early chapters of Exodus, we, we learned that God is a God who hears his people. He heard their cry. The cry of his own people reached his ears. He heard their groaning. He saw their misery. He knew what was happening. But in, in these next five chapters, we're going to get a much different picture of God. We're going to see the God who hears is the God who will deliver his people. And this idea of rescuing people from hopeless oppression becomes the basis of the New Testament and the concept of redemption through Christ. That is the picture we're getting. It's important to remember, God just doesn't deliver. He delivers through judgment. In other words, God rescues people and he brings justice. He redeems people by defeating enemies, his enemies. He's going to deliver the Israelites by force and show the world that he is God. It's the same way he delivered you. Not through plagues, but through force. The plagues are the judgment through which God delivers his people. He turns the natural elements of Egypt, what they worship, against them. And he's demonstrating these gods that you worship, they're nothing. They're figments of your imagination. Pharaoh included. He judges them using their own gods. Fortunately for us, we don't have other gods, do we? We don't have other gods that we worship. There's no little Pharaoh in us. So when God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, you shall have no gods before me. He's not just talking about deliverance. His own people saw what he did to the Egyptians, to the Egyptian army. That message was for them as well. God has the right to declare that you shall have no gods before me. He is supreme over all rivals. So God's going to work through these plagues. Now the Egyptians attributed much of their success as a nation to their gods. And their gods are connected to nature to natural elements in Egypt like most other nations polytheistic in their worldview I've told you already uh, Dr. Boyce said they had over 80 different gods and they believe that the universe is controlled by a whole nother world that involves all these gods who control the various aspects of nature now a lot of these signs and wonders are attacks on a specific Egyptian god. But not all of them. And we don't really know. The scriptures don't tell us which god is in view. But we do know that they are attacks against, from scripture, that they're attacks against the Egyptian gods. And each plague builds on the previous plague. So God will deliver through judgment. So the first plague involves the Nile River. The Nile is at the heart of the Egyptian way of life. And their culture, everything revolves around the Nile. Much, much like Israel would 
become dependent on the Jordan River. It's an important resource. Provided precious and needed water for the country. And it was, it's central to Egypt's greatness. The people of Egypt worshipped the Nile as a god. It had a name for it. Hapi. H-A-P-I. And there's some evidence that the Nile was even referred to at times as Hapi. And every year as the Nile would flood, as it overflowed its banks, it deposits rich silt in the area so that the people can grow crops. Without the Nile, the Egyptians wouldn't have had a farming community. They wouldn't have had any kind of agriculture. And for the Egyptians, because they worshipped it as a god, the flooding of the Nile River became the basis of their calendar year. So their calendar flows from the Nile River. So this god Hopi is associated with water, life, and fertility And he was considered a caring God who helped to maintain order in the universe. So what's about to happen is an attack right at the heart of Egypt's belief system. Before we look at that sign, let's remember back in Exodus 1 and 2. Is the Nile River important there? Yeah. After the midwives refused to kill the babies of the Israelites, Pharaoh instructed the Egyptian citizens to what? Throw every Israelite male baby into the Nile River. Pharaoh was using the Nile River as a vehicle of death. Pharaoh playing on the spiritual sentiments of his people to enact targeted genocide. And don't forget, Moses was hidden in a basket, in an ark, in the Nile River, in the reeds. And Moses' name, I drew him out of the water. So attacking the Nile River is not only about the God of the Egyptians. There's a bit of justice in there, too. There's some retribution there. So this, this sign has meaning on multiple, level, on multiple levels. And right, at, right after our scripture reading this morning, verse 14, which I didn't read, there's a reference to Pharaoh's hard heart. And even though he witnesses the first sign, the, the snake swallowing the snakes, he refused to listen. He refuses to let the people go. Therefore, Moses and Aaron confront him as he's going down to the Nile in the morning. Now, these plagues come in, in threes. And there's a literary pattern there. We're not going to get off into that too much. But <coughs> at the beginning of each of these series of threes, Moses and Aaron are going to meet Pharaoh. And that's exactly what we see here. And this, in this case, down to the Nile River. And God gave them very clear instructions what to say to Pharaoh. And this is the first of many times we will hear these words or similar words. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. And he never will obey. And thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And that's what happened. In Pharaoh's presence, Moses and Aaron strike the Nile with the staff turns to blood. All of the water. Rivers, canals, ponds, pools of water, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Water from the Nile is contaminated no matter where it is stored. The people, the Egyptians, begin to dig for water because they can't drink the bloody water of the Nile. 
Now, verse 22 indicates to us that Pharaoh's magicians were able to replicate this. Again, we don't know how. We don't know why. And the result of that? Well, my guys can do this. Heart is hardened more. This Yahweh, he's it's not a big deal. I can do everything he does. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not take this to heart. Seven days, the Nile River flowed with blood. Seven days. So God has challenged the people's love for the Nile. Don't, and don't, I don't want to give the whole story away, but Pharaoh and his army will be swallowed up in the Red or Reed Sea. Red Sea is kind of interesting. I think Reed Sea is probably more uh, accurate, but the water which the Egyptians worship will ultimately be their worst nightmare. Deliverance through judgment has begun. Chapter 8 records the second plague, and it's, it builds on the first. The Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your country with frogs. It just so happens, of course, when you have a river or waterway, you have frogs, but the Egyptians also worship frogs. They worship cows. They worship lots of different things. So God gives them some extra frogs to worship. And the frogs are everywhere. The frogs are in the house. The frogs are in the bed. The frogs are in the kneading bowls. Imagine this, fellas. You come home at, at the end of the day, and your wife says there's no bread today. I was mixing up the dough, and frogs came out. So you're not getting any bread. Frogs were everywhere. Now, Pharaoh's guys, oh, they can make frogs. They made the problem worse. They made more frogs with their magic arts. Frogs everywhere. Stinking frogs. Dying frogs. Can't you just imagine what it was like? Some of you probably eat frog legs. You're probably like, well, I wish I could have a bunch of frogs like that. The frogs, incidentally, represent the God, another god of fertility for the Egyptians, a goddess. And the Nile shall swarm with frogs, and they shall come up into your house, into your bedroom, and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and your peoples and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you and the people. At Moses' command, frogs everywhere. Pharaoh is not happy about the frog situation. He asked Moses, in fact, he pleads with Moses, plead with the Lord to make the plague stop. Moses kind of in a, he says, would you like the frogs to stop? Of course I would. And Moses learns that Pharaoh would like him to stop tomorrow. I never got that. I never understood why he didn't say stop it now. Stop them tomorrow. Go figure. It's Pharaoh. So Moses goes to God. He intercedes on behalf of the Egyptians. And be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs begin to die. Now, up to this point, Pharaoh's magicians are able to replicate to some degree, what Moses does, what Moses and Aaron do. Here's what they can't replicate. They can't make it stop. They couldn't make the Nile return to normal. They couldn't 
make the frogs stop coming. Their serpents were swallowed up by Aaron's serpents. They're counterfeits, essentially. And God had just overwhelmed the fertility God with these frogs. So Pharaoh gets a little bit of relief here. Oh, Moses did what I asked him. The frogs are gone. So what does Pharaoh do? Well, he did just like you and I would do. He became grateful and thankful and bowed down to God, right? Or he did just like you and I might do. That problem's over. Let me get back to my way of doing things. Let me get back to doing things the way Pharaoh does. Because I didn't like how God did that. I know nobody in this room would ever do anything like that. Well, there might be somebody. I might do something like that. I can't say nobody in this room. So Pharaoh gets a little relief. Back to business as usual. God has struck two of the most significant gods in Egypt. And Pharaoh's like, nah, the problem's over. Let's, you know, get on with life. So the third plague, and it happens this way in each of these groups of three, the third plague comes without warning. There's no warning. It just is there. There's no meeting between Moses and Pharaoh this time. Plague six and nine will do the same thing. Just sudden devastation with no warning. So now we have the gnats. Gnats, mosquitoes, whatever they are, doesn't make any difference. We've all been outside working or enjoying the afternoon or just trying not to be beat to death by the sun and the little gnats on the arms, around the face, the ears. They're annoying. But apparently God sends swarms of them, clouds of them. You see, remember the Egyptians valued ecological harmony. Pharaoh and the gods were to control all this. And things seem to be getting out of control. Why can't Pharaoh <coughs> get rid of these gnats? Why are these gnats here? God is making it clear he is the one who controls the natural elements. Not Pharaoh. Not make-believe gods. Not nice cars. Not nice houses. Not beautiful yards. Not beautiful incomes. Nice incomes. Great friends. Great hobbies. Wonderful ministries. God controls. Not these things. God controls the natural elements. You start and stop disasters at will. <coughs> In fact, you remember I told you Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. It's a continuation of the Genesis story. And in the beginning of the Genesis story, we have the creation account. What we have here is a decreation account. The ninth plague will be darkness, chaos. That is a picture of what many scholars see going on in these plagues. God is decreating the Egyptian nation. He is decreating their reality. Because he's going to have a new creation, isn't he? The nation of Israel. That is the new creation. Here is the next Adam. This nation of Israel, a royal priesthood nation, a nation that will be a blessing to all the nations. And yet the Egyptians believe Pharaoh has the power to undo all this. He can do it. He's Pharaoh. Despite all that's going on, Pharaoh acts in the same way. Hard heart. Heart gets harder. His response is no different when this plague is over. His heart was hardened and he would not listen. 
as the Lord had said. Then we have a plague of flies. Flies everywhere. This is not aimed at any particular Egyptian god. This one begins, Moses is told to go meet Pharaoh. Pharaoh's told, this is what's going to happen. He's given a warning. But now God makes a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people. The Hebrews aren't going to be affected by this plague. Just your people. I don't know how much more proof Pharaoh could have needed, but it still wasn't enough. God said, on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord. This is the first time God separates his people from Pharaoh's people, because that's what's coming. Egypt is being decreated. Israel is being created. And except for the plague of the locusts, all the remaining plagues are going to be directed at Egypt while Israel is protected. Particularly in the death of the firstborn and in the parting of the Red Sea. So as these plagues are going on, Pharaoh begins to try to find ways well, how can, I, how can I satisfy this God without giving in to him? Oh, I don't know. Would anybody ever think of anything like that? How can I make this God happy but still maintain my autonomy, my Pharaoh? How do I keep this Pharaoh inside of me alive and still be okay with God? So he says to the people, uh, Moses, you, you can go worship, but don't go very far. And you can't take everybody, just the men. But don't go far. And so, Moses goes to God. He intercedes, and the plague comes to an end. Now, did Pharaoh really intend to let the people go? Not a chance. Not a chance. So that's as far in the plagues as we'll get today. But in closing, I just wonder if you know anybody, anybody that's close to you, in your past, in your current situation, anybody that's kind of like Pharaoh, he has seen the grace and mercy of God. And he's seen the judgment of God. But he remains hard-hearted. He remains focused on doing things his way. He prefers his idols. It's though he believes if he holds out long enough, this God, this Yahweh, will come to see, he will come to his senses and see things like I see him. I mean like Pharaoh sees him. I mean like I see him. If I wait long enough, Anyone ever meet anyone like that? The lesson God is teaching Egypt, Israel, and us, it's the same lesson. He is the Lord and there is no other. In Israel's case, this lesson through the plagues results in their deliverance. Egypt's judgment results in Israel's deliverance. Judgment, death for Pharaoh. Humans, it's our nature, our fallen nature. We set up false gods, we set up idols in an attempt to control our own lives. We set up these counterfeit gods in order to give ourselves what we want. But loving, trusting, yielding to these false gods never works. It never works. Our false gods become destructive. They lie to us. They promise. Oh, the promises are so good. If I just, I, mean, if, well, I don't want to say this. I've bugged my wife for 
six months to get a new golf club. <laughs> and uh, she yielded the other day. So. <laughs> but th these things promise us what they cannot deliver. Uh, but we chase them every day. We chase them all the time. Oh, we can't wait to go to the mall or to the shopping center or to the boat store or the motorcycle store or to the golf course or to the whatever. Because there's something there that I need. It's going to make everything great in my life. Psalm 115 says this. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of human hands. They have months. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. On and on and on. They're not real, and yet we chase them. The idols of our hearts will always turn on us. What we think we can control begins to control us. And our idols become the means of our own destruction, our own judgment. And this is what happened to Egypt. This is what will happen to any of us when we pursue counterfeit gods, according to Dr. Tim Keller. You might not think of yourself as an idol worshiper. Tim Keller again. That's because your definition of an idol is too narrow. You've made a definition that fits what you think. You've made a definition that allows you to justify what you want to do, what I want to do. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. That reminds me of when I read Augustine's Confessions, Augustine's first brush with death involved a very close friend of his, his closest friend. And Augustine wept and mourned over the loss of his friend. Natural, understandable. And in the end, Augustine starts talking about, and I got mad at him about this, by the way. I wasn't happy when I read it. He said, I turned my relationship with my friend into an idol. And that's how Augustine dealt with, it's the conclusion that he come to. You see, we can make an idol out of anything, anything. Whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then my life has meaning. I'll know I have value. I'll be significant, secure. I'll leave you with this question. Whatever your idols might be, should you have one? Not an accusation, just a question. Is that thing, is that person truly worthy of all that you are? Is it truly worthy of all your affection, of all your attention, of all your desire? The biblical answer is no. There is but one worthy of all those things. And we know that's Christ. And we know it, but it doesn't make it easy. We still fall every day. We still chase after empty dreams. We're not slaves to our sin anymore, but it hasn't let go of us. It's still there, waiting in an instant to take control of your lives and my life. Father, thank you this morning that in your wisdom you have commanded your people to gather together corporately in your sight and in your presence to be nourished by your word. And we pray, Father, this morning that your word uh, will do as you have sent it to do. And these things we pray in Christ's name.
Thank you, Mike. Let's all stand for our closing song. There's plenty of food, so stick around. Receive now the benediction of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You're dismissed. Go in peace.